Today we have two scripture readings uh, for our service to go along with our text. So first of all, let's turn together to Matthew 12, verses 38 to 42. Matthew 12, verses 38 to 42. And we're reading this passage today because uh, in our actual text for this morning, Matthew 16, Jesus references the sign of Jonah. But in our text for today, when he references the sign of Jonah, he, he doesn't explain it. And that's because he already has explained what the sign of Jonah means. He explains it in Matthew 12. And so as we read this passage together, pay attention to what Jesus means when he references the sign of Jonah. So Matthew 12, verses 38 to 42. This is the word of the Lord. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, that is Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. That's for our first reading. Now let's turn together to Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. There we'll read together uh, a well-known parable that you're likely familiar with. And why we're reading this text is because today we'll be talking a lot about Jesus' death and resurrection because that's what the sign of Jonah points to. And here we get some insight into what um, the sign of Jonah, what death and resurrection um, might mean for people who are blinded by their sin. Let's read together Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, father, send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers 
so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. Thus far, our reading of Scripture. Let's turn together to our text for this morning, which is Matthew 16, verses 1 to 4. Matthew 16, verses 1 to 4. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Thus far the reading of God's word. Brothers and sisters, have you ever been in a really frustrating argument? Like the kind of argument where no matter what you say, no matter how many facts and figures you use, no matter how much evidence you bring forward, you... You cannot convince the other person that you're right. In fact, the more you argue, the more you just show that, that their minds are already made up. They're, they're never going to agree with you. The, the evidence doesn't convince them at all that you're right, but instead it just makes them look more and more hardened in their unbelief, in the fact that they will never believe. Well, in our passage this morning, that, that's what we saw, isn't it? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they, they come to Jesus and they, they ask Jesus for a sign. So what, what they're suggesting here is, is that, that they cannot see clearly that Jesus is the Messiah. They, they can't see for sure that he is the one from God, the, the one that was promised in the Old Testament, the, the one who would come and save them from their sins. They, they couldn't see clearly that he's the one that they should put their faith in. And, and so they come to Jesus and, and what they say is that they just need more evidence. Jesus has to prove it to them. He has to bolster his own argument, you could say. But in reality, what we'll see uh, today in this sermon, is, is that they don't need more proof. They're like the other person in that argument that you're having, the frustrating argument. They don't need more proof. Instead, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they suggest that what they need is a sign. In reality, they, they actually don't need more signs. That's what Jesus shows. More signs will just confirm how stubborn they are and, and the fact that they will never believe in Jesus. What they really need isn't a sign. What they really need is a savior, someone to save them from their sins, someone to open up their hearts, their hard, hard hearts to the gospel. And of course, Jesus recognizes the true need of sinful people, and we'll see that in this passage today. And first of all, we'll, we'll see the theme of this passage, which is that Jesus provides the perfect sign for an evil and adulterous generation. 
And we'll study this passage in two parts. First of all, we'll see that an evil generation demands a sign. And secondly, we'll see that Jesus graciously provides the perfect sign. And so first of all, the adulterous generation demands a sign. Uh, In order to understand exactly what's going on here, we need some context, of course. Because we just jumped into four verses in the middle of the, the book of Matthew. And so in order to understand really what the Pharisees and Sadducees are doing here, you need to see what's been going on in the chapters leading up to Matthew 16, right? And so it's important to remember that up until this point, Jesus had been preaching and he had been performing miracles. Specifically, he had been preaching that the kingdom of heaven had come, as promised in the Old Testament. And he had made it clear that he was the long-awaited Messiah, the one that they had been waiting for. And while preaching this message, Jesus didn't just preach how he would, or what his message was, but he also, he he sort of prophesied in a way. He preached what the response to this message would be. And so if you look in the, the chapters leading up to Matthew 16, you'll see that Jesus was saying that there was going to be a mixed response to his teaching. He said that that some would receive it and others would reject it. For example, if you look to Matthew 13, just a little bit before our our passage for today, then then you'll see the parable of the sower, the well-known parable, where Jesus describes sowing the good news about Jesus Christ, sowing the gospel like seed. And and he's sowing the seed around it, and some of it lands on good soil, and, and they receive it and they believe it produces fruit. But the same seed, it lands on hard soil, soils where it will never grow. And so Jesus says there will be a mixed response to his teaching. And then, especially as we get to uh, Matthew chapter 16 and beyond, we see that what Jesus said is coming true. There is a mixed response to his teaching. If you look at Matthew chapter 15, the, the chapter right before uh, our text for this morning, then you'll see there are, there are many unexpected people who are coming to believe in Jesus Christ. You can see that as Jesus goes around preaching and doing miracles, Gentiles come flocking to him and they praise God on account of him. They recognize that he's the Messiah, even though they didn't receive the Old Testament. Uh, In Matthew 15, there's a story of a Canaanite woman who shows incredible faith. And if you look right behind our passage, further on in Matthew 16, you'll see the story of Peter. Peter, the uh, disciple, he he makes one of the greatest claims of faith in in the whole Bible. Just later in this passage, he he says that Jesus is the Messiah. And so some, as Jesus is preaching and doing miracles, they're coming to believe in Jesus. But others are not. And that's what you see in our passage this morning. You see that others, like in the argument we mentioned earlier, Some are convinced by Jesus' argument, so to speak, but others are just getting hardened in their unbelief. Others were rejecting Jesus, and that's what we really see today, that they're being hardened. They're growing increasingly hostile towards Jesus. So if you look at Matthew 15, verse 39, which is the verse right before our passage for today, you'll see that Jesus has just come back into Israelite, to Jewish territory. He'd been out preaching and doing miracles around that territory, and many Gentiles believed in him. And so what we have in our passage is Jesus is essentially stepping foot back into Israelite territory. He's just coming back. And what's the first thing that we read? We read that the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to him. It's as though they had been waiting for him. 
You, you can see how the, the opposition to Jesus is growing. They, they were waiting for him to come back so they could go and question him. And, and there's something really remarkable about this passage, actually. And it, it's something that, that I missed the first time I read it. And I wonder if you did, too. Because for us, uh, it's very easy for us to group the Pharisees and Sadducees together in our minds, right? We, we hear them together all the time. But in this passage, the Pharisees and the Sadducees come together to oppose Jesus. And that is a remarkable thing that, that, that we shouldn't minimize. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were huge opponents of one another. They didn't agree religiously. They didn't agree politically. They hated one another. And so this is actually such a remarkable passage that those who question the Bible's authenticity, they'll point to this passage and they'll say there's no way the Pharisees and the Sadducees would come together. That They wouldn't work together. They hated one another. But what we see in this passage is they came together because of their growing hatred of Jesus. They formed a coalition They came together because their hatred for Jesus was stronger than their hatred for one another. And they were willing to do anything to discredit Jesus. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they they come together to Jesus. And they they come to try and trap him, don't they? They come to Jesus and they demand that he show them a sign from heaven. And again, if you read this passage in context, I would encourage you later... Um, maybe this coming week, just read through the, the Gospel of Matthew. And you'll see how insane this is. Because up to this point, in the passages leading up to Matthew 16, Jesus had been doing a staggering, a baffling number of miracles. Uh, I listed some of them. He had been healing diseases. He had healed people who were paralyzed. He, he healed the blind. He cast out demons. He, at multiple occasions, he fed thousands of people with just a few loaves of bread and a few fish. And even in one instance, he had healed a man with a withered hand right before the Pharisees' eyes. And now the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they come to him and they say, Jesus, show us a sign. Show us a sign from heaven. Do you see what they're doing in this passage? They're basically saying, all right, Jesus, we, we, we've seen these, these miracles. We've seen this evidence that you're building up that we should believe in you, that you're the Messiah. But we're not quite convinced. We still need more proof. We, we need a, a sign from heaven. Your other signs, yes, they've convinced us that you're powerful. They've convinced us that you have authority. As you see earlier in Matthew 12, for instance, uh, they questioned where Jesus got this power. They said, maybe, maybe he gets this power from the devil. We, we won't believe he's the Messiah. We still need more proof. And so they come to Jesus and they say, show us a sign from heaven. And if you look into this passage and you read commentaries about it, you'll see that people dedicate a lot of space to, to asking the question, what's a sign from heaven? What do they mean by that? What kind of a sign are the Pharisees and Sadducees looking for? And, and so people will come up with, theories that, that it's something that only God could do, right? Um, something like making the sun stand still or bringing fire down from heaven. But actually, if you focus on that too much, what, what a sign from heaven is and what the Pharisees and Sadducees wanted to see, you'll kind of miss the point of the passage. And that's because the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they didn't want a sign. 
You can see that in the word choice and in our passage. Instead, they said they wanted a sign, but they came to test Jesus. The word for test there, it's the same word as what's used for the devil earlier in Matthew, where when he comes to tempt Jesus. They don't want to believe in Jesus. They, they don't want a sign to convince them. They want to discredit Jesus in any way that they can. And so we can use our illustration from earlier to try and really understand what the Pharisees and Sadducees are doing. So think again of this frustrating argument uh, that you're having with a friend or a coworker, whoever. I imagine it's on Facebook. Okay? You're, you're arguing with this person on Facebook and it's becoming increasingly clear they will never believe what you're saying, no matter the evidence. But yet they keep on goading you. They keep on saying they want more responses. They want more evidence. And what it seems like they're really doing is they're waiting for you to make a mistake. Maybe to, to cite a bad source or maybe even make a grammatical error. Anything. Anything that they can point to and they can see, see, you're wrong. You made this mistake. That's what the Pharisees and Sadducees are trying to do with Jesus. They're, they're trying to get something that they can point to. Something that they can say, no, this is, see, he made a mistake. He's not the Messiah. He's not the one we should believe in. Don't follow him. So what the Pharisees and the Sadducees are doing in this passage is it's not wanting proof that Jesus was the Messiah. They want to find anything to to justify their belief that he was not the Messiah, that he could not be the Messiah. And of course, Jesus knew this. He knew they didn't actually want a sign. But more than that, Jesus' response, it actually reveals that, that not only did they not want a sign, but actually they don't need any more signs. See, look at what Jesus' response is in this passage. He makes it very clear that they don't need any more signs by pointing out to the fact that, that, that they see some signs that are around them. They see natural earthly signs about what the weather is going to be like, things like that. But he contrasts it with the spiritual signs that they're not willing to admit. They won't admit he's the Messiah. They won't humble themselves and feel like they should repent and believe in him and admit their weakness and admit their sin. They won't believe it. And so Jesus says in our passage, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, you say it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. So basically what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the the great teachers of the law, is okay, you know the little rhyme, Red in the morning, sailor's warning. Red at night, sailor's delight. Okay, you know that. Very good. But yet, you memorize the scriptures, you study the scriptures, and you cannot interpret the signs of the times. You can't understand. That's what he's saying here. You can't understand the signs of the times. You can't see all the signs that I am the Messiah. I'm the one that you're looking for. As one theologian says, you can sum up Jesus' answer here by saying, uh, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and Sadducees, you call yourselves spiritual leaders, but you'd make better meteorologists. You'd be better off as weathermen. Because you study the scriptures, you memorize them, you know what to expect when the Messiah comes. And yet now that he's here, you will not believe in him. You're, You're blinded by your sin. You won't humble yourselves and believe in him. 
And in order to understand what the signs of the times are, again, if you read through Matthew this week, then you'll see that in in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus offers a summary of all the signs, all the prophecies about the Messiah that were coming true in him. Most of them are from uh, the prophet Isaiah. So if you look at Matthew chapter 11, you'll see there John the Baptist sends disciples to ask Jesus, how do we know for sure that you're the Messiah? And Jesus answers by quoting from uh, the prophet Isaiah and showing how he's fulfilling all of these things very openly. He says in Matthew 11, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life. And the poor have good news preached to them. And so Jesus says it's very obvious that I am the Messiah. It's very clear that he's the one that God sent to save them. But instead of all this evidence, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they they keep on arguing. They keep on saying, like in this passage, that they, they just need more proof and then they'll believe. They keep saying, it's clear this man, it's not clear that this man's the Messiah. We, we, it's not clear he's the God-given deliverer who can save us. If he wants us to believe in him, he's going to have to do more to convince us. And so having their mind made up, he's not the Messiah, they come and, and they demand a sign. And what Jesus shows is that the problem isn't with the evidence. The problem isn't with the signs. The signs are literally happening all around them. The problem is with them. It's with their sinful hearts. It's with their hard hearts that refuse to accept him as their savior. And what's important to note in this passage, because let's be honest, for us it can be easy to pile on the Pharisees and the Sadducees, right? And be like, look how ridiculous they are. But this isn't a problem that's unique to the Pharisees and Sadducees. And you can actually see that in our passage, can't you? If you look at the answer that Jesus gives, he doesn't just rebuke the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He rebukes the wicked and adulterous, the evil and adulterous generation. He condemns the whole generation for being wicked and unfaithful to God. And if you look, for example, to Luke chapter 11, there you'll see that a whole crowd comes up to Jesus, same request. They say, Jesus, you want us to believe? Show us a sign. And again, Jesus condemns the whole generation for being wicked. And as I studied this passage, I was reminded of my own time in university. I studied uh, philosophy at McMaster. And there I was surrounded by a lot of atheists and a lot of agnostics. And if you ask them why they don't believe in God, they'll give you a very similar answer, won't they? They'll say, we need more proof. There's no proof. In fact, many of them agreed with a couple of philosophers, one of whom said, um, when he was asked, because he was very openly atheist, he was asked by a believer one time, when you die, and when you go before God, what are you going to say to him? And that philosopher said, I'll say to him, why didn't you give us any proof? And so many of of my uh, peers in McMaster, they they agreed with that kind of statement, but mind-blowingly, they also agreed with this other philosopher who said, even if a miracle were wrought in the open marketplace before 1,000 sober witnesses, I would rather mistrust my own senses 
than ever admit that there was a miracle. And so do you see, do you see the parallel? They say that what they want is more proof. They say that what they need is more evidence. But the truth is because of our sinful natures, they, they wouldn't accept the evidence even if God did give it to them, even though God did give it to them. And again, this isn't just true for people outside of the church. It's true for us as well. We are just as much weakened and, and filled with the effects of sins as my friends in McMaster or as the Pharisees and Sadducees or this evil and adulterous generation that we're reading about, aren't we? We're infected by the same problem of sin. And, and, and we, again, we, we just read this, or we just sang it, rather. That in Psalm 19, we, we sang that the heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. There are signs about God, who he is and what he's done. They're all around us. But because of our sin, we're blind to these signs. And so, I wonder if this is true for you as well. Because I know it's true for me. In spite of this fact, in spite of the fact that I sing and I confess that there are signs all around us. Brothers and sisters, when... When my faith feels weak, often I think, God, just give me a sign. God, just give me some proof. My faith feels weak. All you have to do is prove yourself to me, and then I'll believe. Why are you making this so hard on me? But how hard our sin makes us, that's shown perfectly in the story of Lazarus, isn't it? The story we just read together. There, Lazarus, he calls out to Abraham and says, please just send, um, oh sorry, the rich man calls out to Abraham and says, please just send Lazarus, raise him from the dead, Say, send him to my brothers and they will believe. God, you have to give them more proof. God, this is your fault. But Abraham has the most remarkable answer in that parable. He says, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced, even if someone should rise from the dead. That is how spiritually blind we are because of our sin. That is how totally depraved we are. So brothers and sisters, what that means for us is that when your faith feels weak, when my faith feels weak, we shouldn't call out to God and say, God, I need another sign. God, give me some evidence. We shouldn't suggest, God, I need a handmade sign, something just for me. And instead, we need to recognize what God reveals is our true need. We need not a sign, we need a savior. We desperately need God to soften our hard hearts. We need God himself to open up our eyes to what we're blind to. So brothers and sisters, when your faith is weak, don't ask for a sign. Instead, pray that God will open your eyes and strengthen your faith. And, and spend time in the word and in, in prayer. And, and this is so vital. It's been so helpful for me, and I hope it will be a blessing for you too. But as you pray to God, our, our gracious Father, as you pray to him, be honest. Be honest that your faith feels weak. God knows. God knows our weakness. Say, God, my faith feels weak. God, I don't feel your presence. God, I need your help. God, I need a savior. 
And God won't turn you away for recognizing your weakness. That's exactly what the Pharisees and Sadducees failed to do. They wouldn't recognize their need for a Savior. And that's, that's the tragedy of this, this uh, story, isn't it? Because our sins blinded us and it, it had blinded the Pharisees and the Sadducees as well. And, and they didn't need any more signs. They needed a Savior. They needed a Messiah. And that's what God had told them they needed in the Old Testament. They needed someone who could save them from their sins. And there he was. Jesus, God himself, had come down. He was standing right in front of them. And they would not believe in him. They were blinded by their sinful pride. They were blinded by their arrogance. They wouldn't repent and believe. And so, brothers and sisters, the the gospel message is the same today, isn't it? The, The call, God's word here, it comes out every Sunday. We're confronted with the gospel, with Jesus' words. And so the question is... The Messiah is right in front of you. He's offering to free you from your sins and welcome you to himself. And the question is, what will we do? How will we respond? Because there's a mixed response to the gospel. So the question is, essentially, will we tell Jesus that all we need is more evidence? We need another sign that the problem's not with us, the problem's with God. Because we see in our passage, that's what the Pharisees and the Sadducees do. And now we'll see Jesus' response in our second point. We'll see that Jesus graciously provides the perfect sign. This perfect sign that, once again, it cuts two ways. Uh, For those who don't believe it, it's a sign of judgment. But for those who do believe, it's a sign of salvation. And so Jesus says in the the last verse of our, our passage, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And in order to understand that, we need to think back to Matthew chapter 12. That's where we read what the sign of Jonah means together, right? And so there we read about the first time the Pharisees came and demanded a sign. And Jesus points them to the sign of Jonah. He points them to the real reason that he came down to earth. To fulfill the sign of Jonah. And it's important for us to remember, I'm, I'm quite confident we all know who Jonah is. Jonah's a prophet in the Old Testament, and he, he was sent by God himself to preach to Israel's enemies, the Ninevites. To preach that they had to repent, and then they would be saved from God's impending judgment. And as Jesus says in Matthew 12, he, he's the sign of Jonah because he's the, the greater Jonah. So, so Jonah wasn't a great prophet. Right? He didn't want to go in and preach. I'm sure his preaching wasn't that wonderful. It was, it was essentially forced. And so what Jesus says is, the Ninevites, they did repent, even at just the prophet Jonah's preaching. And now Jesus is saying, but I'm a greater prophet, far greater than Jonah. And so the Ninevites will rise up and condemn the Pharisees and Sadducees and those who don't believe in Jesus' preaching. But that's not why Jesus picks Jonah, right? Because for that message, Jesus could have picked pretty much any prophet. Jesus was the greatest prophet. He was greater than any prophet in the Old Testament. But uh, as I'm sure you know, Jonah had a very specific event in his life that proved beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was sent by God himself 
to preach that message and bring deliverance to the Ninevites. Because when, when Jonah was told to go and preach to the Ninevites, he fled. He tried to go the other way, and, and God stopped him with a storm. The, the sailors cast lots. God picked Jonah. God had Jonah thrown into the water, swallowed by a fish, brought back to land, spit out, and then God tells him again, you're going to go to Nineveh. And so this shows, this beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jonah was the one sent by God to preach this message of repentance. And so in Matthew 12, Jesus says, likewise, as it was clear that Jonah was sent by God because Jonah was, was dead, so to speak, in the heart of the fish for three days and then rose to life and was recommissioned. Likewise, Jesus, it was clear that he was the Messiah they were waiting for. He was the one sent by God because as Jonah was dead, Jesus would literally die. As Jonah was resurrected from the dead by being spit out onto land, so Jesus would literally rise from the dead as the perfect sign that he was the Messiah. He was the one sent by God. He's the one who could save them. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the spiritual blind people they are, they ask Jesus for a sign, and he points them to this. There's one sign. He says, you want proof that I'm the Messiah. You want proof that I'm the one sent who can save you from your sins. You want proof that I'm the one who can save you from your, your sin, your spiritual death. And raise you up to a spiritual new life. Well look at my death and resurrection. Because that proves beyond a shadow of a doubt that I was sent by God. It proves that I'm the Messiah, the one sent to save you. And it, it proves that salvation and new life is available to him. To anyone who will believe, repent and believe in him. And then after pointing them to this sign, once again, he did it twice, remember in Matthew 12 and then Matthew 16. He points them to his death and resurrection and then it says in our passage, Jesus left them and departed. Jesus didn't keep on arguing with them, bolstering their argument or whatever there. Instead, Jesus went away and he kept on working. He kept on raising up his disciples. You'll see that in the rest of Matthew. He kept on preparing his disciples for the time when he would fulfill the sign of Jonah. When he would die and rise again. So that his disciples would be able to go and preach the good news of the life available through Jesus' sacrifice. And as Jesus continued to do this, then yes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they continued to be hardened in their unbelief, didn't they? They continued to grow in their hatred of Jesus. The more Jesus bolstered his argument, made it clearer and clearer he was the Messiah, they got more and more hostile. And so eventually they concocted this plan. This plan to have him falsely accused. To have him condemned to die. They had him beaten. They had him hung on a cross to suffer even though he was innocent. But even when they did this, even when they had him killed, you can see they remembered his teaching. They remembered that he had said that he would rise again. You'll, you'll read that at the end of Matthew, Matthew 27, I believe. There you see that the Pharisees, when they had killed Jesus, they put him in a tomb, or they, after he had been put in a tomb, they sealed the tomb and they set guards there because they remembered. They remembered that he had predicted he would rise again. And, and what do you see? Even though they, they sealed the tomb, even though they set guards there, 
Nevertheless, Jesus did rise from the dead. They couldn't stop him. And when Jesus rose, then the guards ran and they they told the chief priests, they told the religious leaders, the sign of Jonah had been fulfilled. They didn't use those words, but but that's what they told them. The the sign had been fulfilled. And that's remarkable. You know what that means? They had their sign from heaven. They had the proof that they, they, they had demanded. And what was their response? They would not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Just like the, the rich man, uh, it was told in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, even if someone rose from the dead, they will not believe. Likewise, the Pharisees and the Sadducees they, and the religious leaders, they would not believe. Instead, they, they lied about it. They, they bribed the guards to lie about it. They would not submit and believe in Jesus. And in that way, the sign of Jonah was the perfect sign, wasn't it? Because it leaves sinful human beings in a place where they can't use that excuse of the philosopher that we mentioned earlier. That excuse that, God, you just needed to give us more proof. What more proof could we possibly even dream of? Could we possibly even hope for? And so for the Pharisees and for all those who do not believe, the the sign of Jonah is... A sign of judgment. It's a sign that they're left without excuse. But brothers and sisters, the wonderful news, the great news of this passage is just like the rest of Jesus' preaching, the sign of Jonah cut two ways, didn't it? Some were hardened in unbelief, but others, their eyes were opened. You can think, example, for example, of Acts chapter 2. Think of the day of Pentecost. You know that story? There you'll see... That, that the disciples who Jesus trained, they did go out. And they preached the gospel. That God would forgive sins. That because of Jesus' death and resurrection, salvation was available even to those who were responsible for the Son of God's death. And what do we read in Acts chapter 2? That, that when the Jews, when, when they heard this message... By God's grace, many of them were cut to the heart. God opened their hearts to the gospel. He convicted of them of their sin. They believed in Jesus as the Messiah. And simply because of this faith, they were united to Christ in his death and resurrection. And what we read in Acts chapter 2, what Peter says in Acts chapter 2 is that those who believed... By faith, they were saved from that crooked generation. And so, brothers and sisters, we're talking about what the sign of Jonah means. What the sign of Jonah means to those who do not believe, it means judgment. But I ask you to think about it for a moment. What does the sign of Jonah, what does Jesus' death and resurrection, what did it mean for those Jews who believed and were saved? And what does Jesus' death and resurrection mean for all those after those Jews who believe? Everyone else who believes. What does it mean for us? Those who believe in Jesus, who are, are grafted into him by true faith. What does Jesus' death and resurrection mean for you? It means everything, doesn't it? It means that God, 
God loves you. Inexplicably, he loves you and me. It means that God refused to leave us in our sin. He would not do it because he loves us. It means that our sins, our sins that we struggle with every day, these sins that keep on coming up again and again, they are forgiven. They were paid for 2,000 years ago by Jesus Christ. They were wiped clean. It means that Jesus has broken our slavery to sin. So we don't need to be slaves to sin and the devil anymore, but instead we're slaves to Jesus. And it means that when Jesus comes back, when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead, he, he will, it won't be a terrifying sight for us, will it? It means that Jesus is coming back because he wants to live with you forever. He wants to take you home to himself. He wants to be with you. That's how much he loves you. He was willing to die for you. And I was having trouble explaining what Jesus' death and resurrection means for us. How can you explain it? And so I want to end this sermon just by quoting a a few lines from a song that I think explains it more beautifully than I ever possibly could. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, in his death and his resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Amen.